so we know that Chazal say that tzaddikim memaynam chavavaleim kegufam. When it comes to tzaddikim, their money is as precious to them as their own life is. The source for this Chazal is that we find by Yaakov Avinu that Yaakov Avinu risked his life to go back over the bridge after his whole family had gone on one side of the bridge. He went alone back to where he came from because he forgot Pachem Kitanim. He forgot to take little jugs, little tchotchkes that he had forgotten. He went back to get them. Yaakov Avinu was a very wealthy man. Yaakov Avinu did not need to take uh, these little pacham ketanim. They were not that important to his lifestyle at all. He would have been able to survive without those pacham ketanim. Imagine if there was a multi, multi-millionaire and he already is driving back from, uh, from a vacation. He says, oh, I'm so stupid, I forgot my, my toothbrush in the hotel, and he would turn back his car and go get them. Go get a toothbrush for your you're a multimillionaire. What are you going back for a little toothbrush? Yaakovino did really the exact same thing. Yaakovino went. He went back on his own. He forgot Pachem Ketanim, little Chachkas, and because of that, he ended up having to wrestle with the Sarashal Esav, with the angel of Esav. But what we do see from this Pasuk and from Chazal is that its Sadik is very much Machshiv. His, his mammon, his money. And it's a little strange because you would expect for a, maybe a, a regular person that's into trivial things or materialistic pursuits, maybe he would be a little bit obsessed with his, his chafetzim, with his objects. But we wouldn't expect that Sadik, of all people, who really is more concerned with Tyra, with mitzvahs, would he really go and put his money, his life on the line to, uh, to go and find something of very little value? And the answer is that it's not about the chafetz, it's about the time that it took for him to earn the money to pay for that chafetz. There is a, a value of, of time. Time itself has great value. And so... Yaakov Avinu was not obsessed about the Pacham Ketanim. He was obsessed with the time that he had to spend in order to earn the money to get the Pacham Ketanim. That time was so valuable to him that he felt that he needed to go back because if he squanders those chafetzim which took time, that's basically like squandering time itself. So he didn't look at, at money or at objects as chashav in in and of themselves, but he did look at them as being valuable because of the time that it took to earn those chafetzim. This is uh, very reminiscent of something that the Chavetz Chaim used to say. The Chavetz Chaim used to say that people say that time is money. It's a very famous expression that people say, time is money. Come, we have to hurry, time is money. So he says, people say that time is money, but I say that money is time. I don't look at 
time as being money, like time is like, the money is the chash of a thing, so time is chash because it's, it's valuable, it's like you can make more money the more time you have, no, it's the opposite, money equals time, I look at money as being the amount of time that I spend on things. The Chavitz Chaim used to continue and he said that for many people, they don't mind spending a lot of money, to, spending a lot of time to earn money because they, they want the money. He says, for me, the time is more valuable than the money. So I don't want to, I'm not looking to waste my precious time to earn money. I have other more important things to do with my time. But the side that we're taking is that a person has to realize the value that time has. Time is a very valuable commodity. It's perhaps the most valuable commodity in the world. If a person has time, then he has life. And then he can enjoy whatever he has. He can enjoy his family, he can enjoy his material possessions, his ruchnias. But if a person does not have time because he's so busy day and night with earning money that he doesn't have time to really enjoy anything that he's doing with the money, then he really doesn't have anything at all. There's a story that's told that we know that there were two great people in the Chavetz Chaim's Kailal. Chavetz Chaim made a Kailal in his city of Radin for extremely Chashavah Avrechem. It was called the Kachim Kailal. And the reason why they called the Kachim Kailal is because it was a, a Kailal in which they taught and they learned with one another the laws of Kachim. Why did they learn the laws of Kachim? The answer is because the Chavetz Chaim was such a Maimon, he believed so strongly that Mashiach is going to come. And he was afraid. He says, Mashiach is going to come. Is anyone in the world going to be able to pass in the Shilas that come up when Mashiach comes? Imagine if right now Mashiach is here. And all types of Shilas, now the Rabbanim that we have are wonderful, right? They were able to pass in Shilas about Kashrus, Isr Vehetar, Shabbos, Yantif, um, the things that they're familiar with, the things that they know, they're very comfortable passing Baruch Hashem. That's an amazing thing. All of a sudden, Mashiach is going to come. There's going to be a whole new gamut of Shilas that perhaps nobody or very, very, very few people will even begin to know how to handle them. About Toman Tyro. I touched this, I didn't go here, I did go here, and my Tame, and my Tar. You have to know about Aviyavais HaToma, and Avatoma, Arisha, and Shani, all the things, all the Gemaras that you were avoiding. You know, these are things that, that come up Lamaisa, Trumas and Maisris, and, 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 uh, and, and then finally, the big one is Kachim. All the halachas about Karbanis, about the Kaihanim, about Chatzitza, and about uh, Shrita, and who's kosher to do the Shrita, Zrika, and Malika, Malika, and all these myriad, myriad halachas about Kachim, who in the world is going to be able to paskin all these new shilas? This is something that might not keep us up at night wondering about and worrying about, but the Chavetz Chaim was like the grandfather of Kali Yisrael. He was worried about everything like this. And he basically was very much uh, concerned that there would be no paiskim to deal with all these shilas. So he made 
something very unusual. Today you have brisk, and they're very into Elchus Kachim, and, and they learn Kachim Mesech, this Baruch Hashem. But back in the day, there wasn't a brisk. And so he made like a, a, a brisker kail, if you will. And they learned Seder Kachim, and they learned it Halach Lamaisa. And these were the, the top gun of Rechem in the world. The Chavetz Chaim paid them. I guess he paid them pretty well. And they came from far and wide to join this Kachim Kailu. Now, I don't know all the people that learned in the Kachim Kailu, but I do know two of them. And so do you. One of them was Rebbe Chan Vassarman, the great Baranovich uh, Rosh Hashiva. And the other one was the great Panovich Arov. Now, Mendy is smiling because he's seen great Jewish wisdom clips, and so he knows exactly who these personalities are. But, and the rest of you might be smiling also, but I wish you would, you know, un, uh, you know show your faces, because uh, it makes it a lot more fun. Um, now, no buyers, okay. Ah, Yoni's coming. Shkayach, who else? Any other brave people? Wow, okay. Good. Mayor, where are you? Okay. Anyway, so, ah, Yehuda. So these are, uh, so two people that were part of the Kachim Kail was Rebbe Chanan and the Panovich Now Rebbe Chanan and the Panovich learned the Chavrusa. There's a, a lot of very cute stories about this Chavrusa Shaft. I'll just tell you one very quick one. Rebbe Chanan had a baby boy. His wife had a baby boy. She lived not in Radin, she lived elsewhere. And, uh, but he got a telegram that Mazel Tov, you had a son, the bris is next Tuesday, and we'd like you to come home, uh, you know, to be at the bris. After all, it's your son. So he went to the Chavetz Chaim to ask Rishos to go and, uh, to go and, and, and be at the bris. So the Chavetz Chaim looks at him, and he says, I didn't know that you were a male. Says you're a male. Says no, I'm not a male. Says so why do you need to be at the bris? He says, uh, well, I'm the Aviyah Ben. I'm the father of the baby. He says so. They could do it without you. Get a male, and that's it. What do you? You don't need to be there. You need to be here. I'm paying you to be in the kachim gail. You got to learn kachim. And uh, and that's what happened. Itaka, he just stayed, and he he didn't. He wasn't at his own son's bris. There's a an addendum to this story, by the way, and that is that. Before he did that, the Chavetz Chaim said, but get Rishos from your wife. Make sure that she's okay with this, because he didn't want to call Shalom Bayes. It's just that nobody speaks about that part of the story, but that's a major part of the story. Okay. But another story happened that as they were learning, when Rulchan and the Panavich were learning, they needed a certain safer. It wasn't like our base medrash that's stocked with Svarim. They were learning in an attic in, in the Radin Yeshiva, very few Svarim. And they happened to know that this particular safer that they were looking for, there's a very good chance that maybe the Chavetz Chaim has it, because the Chavetz Chaim brought it down at least in one place in his Sharetzion on the bottom of the Mishnabura, where he brings all the footnotes of the sources. He brings that safer, so they assume that the Chavetz Chaim probably has the safer, and they needed to look at it, to look at that safer, to look something up. What they did was, they went to the Chavetz Chaim's house, they knocked on his door, and the Chavetz Chaim answered his door, and he said, they said, Rebbe, we need a, a certain safer, whatever the safer was. 
So he says, he looks at his farm shrank. It's like, a, you'd think it has, like, you know, every cuddle guy today in the world has, like, a whole, and every bar mitzvah boy, for that matter, has a whole wall of svarim. Chavetz Chaim had a little svarim shrank with maybe uh, 30, 40 svarim in it. He looks at it and he cracks. He says, he says, I don't have that safer. So they said, but you brought it down in the Sharet Sea, and what do you mean you don't have it? So he said that, um, he says, I borrowed it. Like a lot of the svarim that I bring in the Mishnabura, I don't have them, can't afford it, I borrowed it. So they were about to leave his apartment, and then they asked him, before, they, before we leave, just want to know, when, you, when the Chavetz Chaim just gave a krechts, when he like gave a groan by looking at the svarim shrank, does that mean that you were upset that you don't have that safer and many, many other svarim, that you have so few svarim, is that why you looked at the svarim shrank in that way? So he says, no. He says, whatever sarm the Rabbi Hashem gave me, I'm happy for. I don't wish I had a whole fully stocked library. So why was the krechts? Why did you give a krechts? He says, because I was looking at the sarm that I did have. And I realized that I spent a lot of money on those sarm. In those days, sarm were very, very rare. You couldn't get them like you can today. And they were very expensive because there was supply and demand. So it took a lot of money to buy every safer. Chavetz Chaim said, you know, a lot of those svarim I bought, and I don't know if I really need them. I don't know if I really use them enough to justify the money that I paid for them. And since I hold, my shita is that money is time, that every dollar that I earn basically is valuable because of the time that it took to earn it, so I'm worried that maybe I spend too much time to make that money to buy those svarim and the money and the svarim that I'm not using are really like a waste of time. Forget about a waste of money. He wasn't concerned I wasted my money on that. I wasted all the time on buying those svarim and not using them enough to, to justify that expenditure of time. That's a very, very big chiddish. It shows us how important it is for a person to appreciate the greatest commodity that the Rabbi Yishlam gives us, and that's the commodity of time, that's the gift of time. People that are on their deathbeds know this. When we're young and healthy, we don't look at it that way. We look at it, we have all the time in the world. So much time, I don't know what to, I'm bored, I don't know what to do with all my time. When a person is about to die, and I've seen, Rahman al-Islam, people that are about to die, they, they get very desperate because they're gasping for, for more, they just want more time. All they want is to live more. And, and then at that point they realize they wasted so much time. I had so many years, what did I do? I watched The Price is Right, I watched, I watched Yeshiva World a hundred times, I listened to 1010 Winds, Chazering again and again, every 20, give me 22 minutes, I'll give you the world over and the same, same sports, same stock market, same news, same headlines, over and over again. I wasted hours, hundreds, maybe thousands, millions of hours of my life. I mamish threw them down the drain. And a person has to realize that 
time is very, very precious. And when we're young, we don't. We squander. We do, you know, we play video games the whole night and we, 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 we look at movies and we read newspapers and books and magazines and doing all types of things just to pass the time. But when we get older and time is more scarce, we begin to realize that the value of time was something that I didn't take full advantage of. I didn't appreciate it. I spend too much time at work not enough time with my family. I spend too much time uh, with trivial pursuits and not enough time learning, not enough time davening, not, a, not enough time doing chesed. And these are things that right now should haunt us, because, not make us neurotic, but should, it should be on our, on our minds that maybe I could use my time a little better. I saw something amazing last week. I don't know how I stumbled across it. Wasn't learning a concise, I could tell you that much, but it was. Uh, but it's still, it's a very, very telling piece. I think everybody knows. I think uh, who Warren Buffett is, correct? Warren Buffett is uh, one of the wealthiest men in the world. He's today. He's uh, I don't know. He's probably. In his, I think he's ninety years old. He's an old man today, but he's he's known as like the greatest investor of all time, greatest investor of all time. Um, and he's not even into Gashmis, that's the irony. You know, you'd think a guy like that would have a million houses all over the world and swimming pools and yachts and could afford anything he wants, right? He's basically, he's worth, I don't know, 50, 100 million, billion dollars, sorry, billion dollars, so he could get whatever, he doesn't want anything. He does, his mamish lives like, like Hatsnea Leches, he does. He he wears old suits and he has an old uh, car and he doesn't he doesn't live it all extravagantly. The reason why he makes so much money and why he's still in the game is because he just appreciates. He loves doing it. He really likes doing it. He doesn't need the money anymore. He never needed the money. I was telling stories to my kids about him the other day. How uh, his wife he's, he's known to be very frugal. He's a very cheap guy. And um, his wife asked him, like maybe 30, 40 years ago, if she could have a new kitchen. You know, every woman in, in Flatbush, Borough Park, the Five Towns, gets three kitchens before they're married 10 years, right? It's not a big deal to put a kitchen in for, for a guy that's making a you know, six-figure salary, apparently. So it should definitely not be a big deal for Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett makes more in one minute than I'll make in 20 lifetimes. So it shouldn't be, you know, a really big deal for him to put in a new kitchen. So his wife said, you know, I really would like a new kitchen. Why do I only have one sink? You know, I don't have one for milk eggs, one for flesh eggs. Like she was making a whole big deal about it. So he said, how much does a kitchen cost? She said, I don't know, eighty thousand dollars. I'll sign eighty thousand by the, the marble and the island and this. He says, No, I'm not doing it. Eighty thousand dollars. I'm not putting eighty thousand dollars into a kitchen. I'm not crazy. So she says, Listen, Warren, every yuckel on our block has a new kitchen in their house. They're not Warren Buffett. There are one is a doctor, one's a plumber, one's a lawyer, one's a professor, one's a mashkiach and issue. They they all have they have new kitchens. Why 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 can't we have a new kitchen? What's so bad about us having a new kitchen? You can't, they can afford $80,000, and you can't afford $80,000? Listen to what he said. It's a, it's, a, it's a gainous. He said, I can afford $80,000. Of course I can. He says, but the difference is, between me and the other people on the block, all your friends that have fancy new kitchens, he says, their husbands don't know what to do 
with $80,000. They might as well put it $80,000 into a kitchen. He says, I, I can take $80,000, I know exactly how to invest it, and in a few years, that $80,000 I can turn into $30 million. Without, without even blinking an eye, I know exactly where the industries are going. I can mamish, I buy IPOs, and I can invest in this, and hedge it with gold, and, and buy real estate, and invest in Goldman Sachs. I could take that $80,000, and within a few years, I could parlay it into $30, $40, 50000000 million. So he says, I'll spend $80,000 on a kitchen. I'm not spending $30 million on a kitchen. It's a guyness, right? I don't know if she accepted it or not, but that was... It, you could see that it's true. It has, there's truth to that, right? It makes sense. If I, if I, But you can start getting neurotic also. If you start thinking about everything like that, then you get crazy. Like, you'll never buy, a, you'll never buy anything. I, you know, I'll spend $10 on a sandwich. I'm not spending $10,000 on a sandwich, so you'll never eat. So obviously you've got to do things in life, but that's... Just giving you a muscle for Warren Buffett. Now, I saw an article about him, which is half of a fellow. It's not really about him, it's about his son. He has a son, he has a couple of sons, and this son, his name is Peter Buffett. In 1977, when he turned 19, he received his inheritance, proceeds from the sale of his grandfather's farm, which his father converted into $90,000 worth of Berkshire Hathaway stock. Yuchap? His son, Yarshin, from his grandfather, Warren Buffett's father, had a farm. They sold the farm. And instead of giving each kid the actual money that was coming to him, Birusha, he, Warren Buffett gave him that amount, but in his stock, meaning they all invested, all the kids got to put the $90,000 into Warren Buffett's company, called, which is called Berkshire Hathaway. Now, at the time, Berkshire Hathaway was a small investment company. It really wasn't that valuable at the time. But over the course of time, like today, each share is, I don't know, $100,000. It like, went from being a few hundred dollars to being $100,000, maybe more. It's probably maybe closer to half a million. I don't know. But it's a, it's a ton of money. This company is like the most successful company in human history, maybe. So... He got this, in 1977, he got $90,000 worth of Berkshire Hathaway stock. Now, it was understood that I should expect nothing more, said Peter. Meaning, that was all you were going to use. It's known that Warren Buffett doesn't want to give any money to, over to his kids. He's giving it away to charity, whatever. Basically, that's you, this is what you have. You have $90,000 worth of stock, and now, la dam, I have nothing to do with you. Basically, financially, I'll, I'll be your father, but financially, I'm not giving you any more money. You have $90,000 worth of Now, this, he was a teenager in college at that time, and he was the youngest of the Buffett children, and the other children, they burned through their cash pretty quickly. He didn't want to do that. So he basically said to himself that he wanted to be a musician. That was his dream. This Peter Buffett wanted to be a musician. And he sold all of his shares of Berkshire Hathaway. He cashed in the $90,000. He put it in his bank account and used that money to live. Meaning he, he, he rented an apartment wherever he lived. He paid tr- people to teach him um, 
had a had to be a musician, teach him how to play musical instruments. Um, he basically used the money in his words to buy the time it would take to figure out if I could actually make a go of it in music. So first he dropped out of Stanford University, and then he uh, he moved to San Francisco. He lived very frugally in a small studio apartment. Um, he bought recording equipment with the money. He worked on perfecting his 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 talents as a pianist, as a music producer. Uh, he actually ended up being pretty successful. Um, eventually, he basically, uh, you know, he he won like an Emmy. He, he he for his, you know, he pretty much became successful in the field that he was shooting for. But he sold all that Berkshire Hathaway stock. Guess how much? that stock would be worth today if he had not sold it. Okay? So that stock would have been worth today more than $200 million. $200 million. From 1977, if he would have just done nothing, he would have sat on the couch and watched uh, Tar Anytime all day, he would have been worth today $200 million but he sold the stock. Now, if it was me, I would look for, like, a nice bridge, you know, and, like, uh, wear a bathing suit or something and say Kaddish and then jump. I think that would be a consideration of mine. $200 million? Am I stupid to be a stupid musician? Like, what, am I crazy? Now, I don't know if he just said this, you know, because he doesn't want to do, you know, go to the local bridge, but basically this is what he said. He says... I didn't make that choice of, of staying, working for his father or keeping that money. And I don't regret it for a second, he said. I used my nest egg to buy something infinitely more valuable than money. I used it to buy time. I used it to buy time. And that time allowed me to find success in doing the work that I love. Now, that's something that I, I was very impressed by that Muslim, because that's not a, a Gaiyish Muslim, that's a Yiddish Muslim, that's a Chavitz Chaim Dika Muslim. He doesn't regret spending that money, because he bought with that money time. Time is much more valuable than money. Warren Buffett is someday going to be broke. How is he going to, what, the stock market is going to crash? And No, he's going to be broke the day that he dies, whenever that day should be. But the day that he dies, he will be poor. So will Jeff Bezos, so will, Warren, so will uh, um, Bill Gates. They'll all, they'll be broke because they have no time left. Money is worthless without time. And so time is only chashev if you use it well. Money is not chashem. Money is only a hechatimza to to buy more time. If I work and now I'm able to have some money, now I'm able to to learn. I'm able to give tzedakah. I'm able to raise my family. I'm able to do good things. But money in and of itself is not a goal to have. Money is only hechatimza to have time. And if you're using too much time on making money, more money than you really need, that's a big waste of your time. But these are musagim that only, they have to be the Chavetz Chaim for, because we're living in a world that is so enamored by materialism and money that you have to just keep making more and more money. 
you can't even stop and think because you don't even know what you're making money what, what for. But you need more money and, and you have to spend more time at work and more time in the office and more time investing in stocks and bonds and, and this and that. But in terms of for what purpose, it's in order to... The ultimate purpose of money is to be able to live a life that you need to live. And for that you need time. And if you're spending too much time making money, then it's a real waste of your time. Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, when his oldest son, Rabbi Yamin, became Bar Mitzvah, he gave him a, a gift wrap present. And he said to him that, I am giving you the greatest gift that a person can ever get. And Rabbi Yaman excitedly, as a bar mitzvah boy, he told me the story himself. He was just nifter maybe two years ago. He ripped open the, the gift wrap paper, and he said, and it was a watch. He says, that's a nice watch, but is this the great? He says, not the watch. He says, time. Time is the greatest gift that a person could ever have. I'm giving you the gift of time. And you have to use it right. You have to use it wisely. Don't squander it. And it's very, very important to understand that. I, I, for When I was putting out my book, Great Jewish Treasures, he was one of the first addresses that I went to, Rabbi Yamin, because I thought that maybe he would still actually have that watch so I could take a picture of it and, and put it in my book as, as a great, you know, musser graphic for that story. But he said that he lost it. It was like it was given to him in Europe, and, you know, he's now in America, and it was like a whole new world, and he, he, he misplayed, whatever, he doesn't have it anymore. Like, we don't have any of our permits or watches anymore, probably. He didn't have it, you know, 90 years later. He still didn't have it. So, but that's basically a, a very, very important side that you have to try to think about and to master and to really absorb when you're young. Because don't wait until you're old to chop how valuable time is, because then you're going to it's going to be too late. You're not going to have enough time to really do the things that you need to do at that time. You have to ration your time. You have to use it wisely. Make big plans for yourself. Say, I, I have this amount of time. I'll wake up early in the morning. You know, it's interesting. I was just telling somebody in my family, when you wake up early in the morning, you wake up, let's say, 5 o'clock, 5.30 in the morning, you have an hour and a half, two hours before davening, and it's the best time of the day. No one's up yet. Everybody's sleeping. The house is quiet. You're able to learn. You're able to be mavisedra. You're able to, to think. You're able to write. You're able to edit. You're able to do, you know, whatever you're doing, it's a great time. But no one, it's like a secret that nobody knows about. You can extend the day by two hours if you wake up or not. If you're, wait, if you're going to sleep at 1 o'clock in the morning, it's going to be hard to wake up at a normal time. And if you're going to sleep late at night because you're actually accomplishing important stuff, then that's, that's great. But if you're just like doing nothing the whole night, you're chilling and you're, you know, you're schmoozing on the phone with people and you're, you know, you're watching videos or you're playing video games the whole night, and you're just, that's ridiculous. That's such a waste of time. It's okay to chill a little bit, it's important, but to spend hours upon hours upon hours every day of doing things that are so such a waste, go to sleep at a decent hour, wake up early in the morning and learn, daven, think, take a walk, 
exercise, but do things that like that that will really improve the quality of your life and the quality of every single day. The the Ger Rebbe used to say that the reason why a chassan gets a, a gold watch today, I don't know if every chassan gets a gold watch. I didn't, but uh, many chassanim used to get a gold watch. And um, and he says the reason why Hassanim got a gold watch was to teach them a lesson, and that is that what's the main thing, the gold or the money? Well, if you're using gold to make a watch, that shows that the ikker is the watch, the ikker is the time, and the gold is just a uh, it, it just sort of is a uh, it's it's a receptacle to hold time. That means that. The chash of a thing is really the watch. The time is more chash than the gold. And you have to always remember that throughout your life. A chasen, when he gets married, has to think, wait a minute, what's the ikr, what's the tavla? Is the gold the ikr? Or is the time the ikr? Well, if gold is, is encasing my, my cla- the, the face of the watch, that means that time is the main thing in life. And the gold is just a, a tuffle to time. Time is the most valuable resource. But a person has to really fight the, uh, like an upstream battle to understand this because the whole world doesn't have this. The whole world thinks that money, 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 especially in America, everything is about money. Everything is about how much he's making every year, what he's, uh, you know, what he's driving, what he's buying, where he's moving, what he's investing in, to, you know, what clothing he's wearing, what type of belt is that, what type of, uh, you know, tie is that. Everyone's obsessed with materialism in our world, unfortunately. And it's something that no one's caring about time. Time is bottle. The main thing is money. But the smart people in life realize that it's the opposite. Money is so unimportant. It's important to have. You need money in order to feed your family, etc. But I'm talking about you know, beyond what you need to support your family and live in a comfortable environment, beyond that, don't make the mistake of running after um, after too much money at the cost of too much time. Because tzaddikim, chavavaleim, their money is very valuable, but not in and of itself. It's only valuable because they spend so much time earning it. And the more time that you uh, can keep for yourself and learn and daven and spend with your family and do good things, that's really the greatest investment that a person could ever make. Okay, everybody, say have a good night. Thank you for listening.